Welcome to TribeCast. I am Forrest Walden, founder and CEO of Iron Tribe Fitness. And on this podcast, I am going to help you find your tribe and maximize your life. Welcome to another episode of TribeCast. Excited this morning to sit down with the executive director of Neverthirst, Matt Letourneau. And uh, it's going to be a really awesome show because we get to talk about the incredible relationship between Iron Tribe and Neverthirst and my long history of Neverthirst and how Matt has come in and already impacted our organization. So first of all, Matt, thanks for coming in, carving out a little time for us. Well, thanks for having me, Forrest. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be here. Awesome. Well, Matt is uh, an Auburn graduate. Let's start there. 2001 for a few years after me. Been married 17 years, three kids. Uh, comes with a litany of background in both ministry and business and is pretty recent to the Never Thirst team. Just in the last few months, he's come on. How long have you been with Never Thirst now? Been Never Thirst for four months now. Okay, four months. And so I headed up the recruiting and interviewing process to find our next executive director. And I can tell Matt now, from the moment I saw his resume, I felt like God was telling me, this is your man. And then our first uh, phone interview, I felt like that was confirmed. And all the way through, I just really, from the very beginning, thought Matt was the right man for the job. And he uh, has proven to be that and really excited to have him on board. So, Matt, I gave a little bit of an overarching look at your life. Um, just tell us who you are and, you know, what, what led you to this point in your life. Yeah, well, Forrest, I'm a lot of things. You know, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm an uncle, uh, I'm a pet owner. Uh, I'm an Iron Tribe member again for the second time, or an Iron Tribe athlete. But uh, really, I think it all boils down to, um, you know, knowing who I am in Christ, being a son of the Most High God, uh, and knowing that my identity is firmly rooted there, uh, which is drives my mission and purpose in all of my life. Uh, You've alluded to it already, but you're right. I've been married to my wife, Julie, for 17 years. We met at Auburn, and uh, she almost didn't marry me because I told her I never knew if I would uh, have a vocation in ministry, specifically mm. overseas, which she felt called to, which is interesting and uh, quite fulfilling in my marriage and for my wife that we're now part of a ministry together uh, that is having deep impact internationally. Um, we have three children, Nathan is uh, my eighth grader he's 13 Alyssa is my fourth grader who's nine and Josiah is the caboose he's seven and uh, you're catching me on a day today that I'm uh, I'm feeling like one of the worst dads in the world because I willingly moved my 13 year old son to a new place to start eighth grade so mm. dropped him off this morning uh, I was choking back some tears he just walked into a new place not knowing a soul and so uh, trusting God with him and uh, trusting that he is a pretty resilient kid and that he'll figure it out and make good choices. But uh, I'm feeling a little extra emotion this morning. Is, was today actually the first day? Today's the first day. Wow. That, uh, that'll be a gut check for him, as you know, well know, walking in there and not knowing anybody. That's right. All right, so talk to us about your professional background, how you got to the point to lead uh, this growing ministry. What have you done with your life? Well, um, that is deeply connected with just the meta-narrative of my life. Um, you know, grew up worshiping at the altar of Almighty Sports, um, was part of a church, 
Uh, but the tradition of church that I was part of made a, a big deal out of the Holy Spirit, but I don't ever remember really hearing the gospel uh, and the, the purpose and the point of Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection uh, until I really got to college. Uh, I had read, read the wave of athletics into my sophomore year of college. That all came to a crashing halt. And um, that's when I met an organization called The Navigators. Uh, there was a tax attorney by the name of Nick Shimoda that was uh, part-time staff with the Navigators volunteering time at Auburn. And I, um, our paths converged. He invited me to a Bible study. Um, I remember going, there's all these guys about one year older than me. Uh, they were studying the first 13 verses in Ephesians 1. And I came with my Bible, but they had about 10 pages of notes you know, cross-references, observations, interpretation, application for how this was going to impact their life. I was totally outgunned, um, but really curious because they were really cool to me, uh, the type of guys I would want to hang out with. Um, and Nick asked me at the end of that, said, hey, if you're interested in, in learning more and getting in the Word more, uh, meet me at Burger King tomorrow morning at 6. And so I was really hungry and really broken and really desperate and pretty identityless at that point in my life. And uh, so I took Nick up on it and met him at Burger King. He asked me the most penetrating, uh, personal, deep, uncomfortable questions that I've ever been asked. But I strangely enjoyed it. <laughs> and uh, Nick continued to meet with me every week, a couple times a week. Um, discipled me, got me in the Word. I understood the grace of God for the first time understood the role and the purpose and the point of Jesus in his life and his death and resurrection. And that set me on a trajectory that was way different than what I thought my life was going to be. Um, my dad was a small business owner, and I thought that I would probably one day take over the family business. I uh, enjoy business. I uh, certainly enjoy the thought of making money. Um, but the navigators ended up recruiting me, uh, asking me if I would go on staff, in which I rejected and rejected and rejected the notion of doing that. Um, until late into my senior year of college. And um, I was driving around Auburn, and you're an Auburn grad, so you know this, but you know, Auburn's just a big circle, so mm -hmm. I'm driving on university just around and around. And I was listening to uh, a song that one of my friends and his buddy had written. They had rewritten some old hymns. And there was a quote by Jim Elliott said that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And my friends had written a, a song about that, and I was, it was playing, it was playing. It was probably around midnight. And man, it just hit me like a bolt of lightning in my soul saying, you know, I can do anything for a year. I could probably live in the jungle for a year and give my life to this. It would probably be really good development for me spiritually, and then I can always go back into business. And so I applied to go on staff at the Navigators. Um, they sent me to uh, the, the frigid north of Penn State to do campus ministry. Oh, gosh and uh, a culture that I knew nothing about. Uh, but I loved it. They just turned me loose in some dorms. It was an entrepreneurial venture. I knew no one. Uh, I had no direction. <laughs> they said, just go go find people, recruit people, and ask them if they'd be interested in reading the Bible. And so I did. God was very faithful, brought me, you know, about a dozen guys that were interested in, in reading the scriptures, and I, I became totally addicted, uh, probably in an unhealthy way. To, to ministry and, and how that made me feel and the, the perhaps a little bit of uh, replacing my identity, which should have been in Christ, with my identity and uh, be, with 
how I could impact and influence people. Uh, nonetheless, God was faithful, and my what I thought was going to be a one-year assignment with this organization turned out to be almost 15 years. Mm. Um, and as God would have it, his in his sense of humor, um, after spending four years at Penn State, I went and spent seven in Tuscaloosa <laughs> ministering to uh, students at the University of Alabama in Forest. I mean, you might be ashamed of me to say this uh, as a fellow Auburn grad, but I literally put all my Auburn stuff in a, in a cardboard box, put it in the closet, didn't get it out for seven years wow. uh, just so I could have influence on the campus and you know, not let that something that trite uh, get in the way of the advancement of the gospel. Um, it was during those years that I had a, a massive shift, I think, in my philosophy in terms of how I was reading scriptures and, and just seeing God's heart for the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. Um, and so there was also at that time a huge call to the cities. Um, Tim Keller out of Redeemer Prez uh, was really challenging, I think, a lot of the churches saying, hey, let's, what are we doing in the urban areas and the systemic injustices that are there, specifically in the educational systems and, some, and whatnot. And so I ended up um, moving to Atlanta. It was a pretty autonomous move, still under the umbrella of the Navigators, uh, but had the freedom to recruit and freedom to raise a, a different operating budget, have my own board. And so I did that, moved to Atlanta, was really focused on urban ministry, uh, urban education, uh, refugee sustainability uh, with um, creating jobs on the east side of Atlanta in a place called Clarkston, urban education on the west side in a place called English Avenue. Um, recruited 60 staff, so I had 60 um, staff folks, uh, you know, working in this ministry uh, under my leadership, which was a great developmental challenge uh, because it was very uh, uh, diverse in terms of age and race and class and um, geographically dispersed over a pretty large area. Uh, but it was wonderful developmental-wise. Uh, and in those years, there was a lot of fruit. We were able to start a school, able to help refugees, able to meet with minister to businessmen and launch several campus ministries, and it was a fruitful time. Uh, however, uh, during that time, felt the Lord once again shifting my heart uh, and not really able to see a long-term future in the organization. And uh, the chairman of my board, this man named Gary Christopher, uh, had his own management consulting firm and uh, had approached me about joining him uh, in that field. And so after a lot of prayer um, and after assessing my options and feeling like I had done what I needed to do uh, and feeling pretty released by the Lord uh, to, to pivot, I, I made a complete and total pivot um, out of vocational ministry into starting my own small uh, consulting LLC uh, just called Laterno Consulting, doing mostly 1099 work for uh, my friend Gary, who had a company called the Joldos Group, and also another man that I had met named Bob Lewis, uh, who had his own consultancy called Lewis Leadership. And um, these guys were, you know, being with these guys was like getting a, a PhD really quickly uh, in the management consulting world. Uh, Gary had his graduate degree from Duke, Bob had his from MIT, very, very smart men, very godly men. Um, and they just took me under their wing and uh, gave me everything they knew. Uh, 
and I ended up working on their book of business, building my own book of business, and I did that for about four years. Uh, it was uh, mostly fulfilling work, but man, it was it, it was also a time of tremendous uh, breaking and some disillusionment for us. If I'm really honest, so in that time. Uh, the things that were really, really good was I was learning new skills. Uh, I was really feeling like I was helping business owners. Um, I was really building a good network. Um, and I would say the work was mostly fulfilling. However, um, there was always kind of this indirect impact that I felt like I was having, like there wasn't real impact. I was totally working alone. Uh, I had no team. Uh, and it was just me basically going in and consulting with my clients. And so after about two years of that, I, I had run into an old friend that um, runs a homeless ministry in Atlanta who uh, just out of the clear blue asked if I'd be interested in coming and working as uh, the COO of that mission and then potentially being his replacement when he retired. And I totally jumped at it and said, yeah, I'd be interested in that. The real short story on that is that um, they had hired a executive search consultancy, um, asked if I would put myself in that process, I did, and after five months of interviewing, uh, was informed by my friend that I was coming in second. Hmm. And so it was pretty devastating. Uh, the next day, the search consultancy called me back and asked if I'd be interested in another um, uh, executive director role with another uh, nonprofit organization based out of Florida, and I said, "Yeah, I'd love to, love to be considered for that." And got called back a few days later saying, "Hey, it's too late. They've already uh, are engaged with another candidate. That's off the table." And so at that point, Forrest, I was like, "What is going on with me? What is going on with me that I'm jumping so quickly uh, into these opportunities that I haven't even really done the work of finding out what these organizations really are about?" Uh, and so at that point I consulted a coach, um, or I engaged a coach, hired a coach who dug deep, asked me a lot of penetrating questions and really helped me get unstuck in my thinking. And what came out of that was, you know, that the way that God had wired me and the way that God's built me, uh, the things that he's put in my heart to do, uh, were to have real direct impact with people and to be building and leading teams towards a common goal. Uh, and I just, those boxes were just not getting checked um, in business consulting. Uh, so it was along that same time where I, I began to think, well, Lord, I, I don't want to be open-handed with you uh, and go where you want me to go, do what you want me to do, but you're going to have to open up these doors. And I went back to consulting. And then right after I went back full-time and to you know, continue to build my book of business, Forrest, I had 17 straight contracts um, go, go completely down the toilet. You know, like 17 engagements. Ink was just about to be on the paper. You know, it would have been a record year. Uh, just went into nothing, right? And so I'm in a job that I'm becoming increasingly unfulfilled in and the clients that I had in my entire pipeline uh, was what was wiped out over the course of a couple months. And so I'm just watching my runway get shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. Um, you know, and just evaluating everything, saying, God, where are you in this? 
uh, you know, I've followed you into the navigators, I've followed you out of the navigators, I'm doing this, and now I'm fairly unfulfilled, not really using my gifts and talents, and my clients are, like, crazy stuff's happening, like the the people I'm dealing with are getting fired or moving to different positions, they're reevaluating everything, they're tabling all everything that I was gonna do for their company, and it was it was a tough time. About six months of that, got called back from the search consultancy again. They are offering me a CEO role with another nonprofit in Texas. And uh, the short story on that was that once I uh, I came in second again, so I was beginning to feel like the Buffalo Bills <laughs> of, uh, of executive search. Uh, were kind of always the bridesmaid and never the bride, so to speak. Um, it was really a time of, uh, of brokenness, and God was faithful and brought me more clients, and I was able to do the work, uh, and I was grateful for it. Um, and it was at that time that the Never Thirst, I guess it was about Christmas time of 18, I was made aware of the Never Thirst opportunity by uh, a friend of, the, of, of, you know, of Cords who was running the search, yep. Fire Seeds. He'll actually be on the show in two weeks. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. I've uh, spoken with Cord on the phone, and I don't know if we've ever met in person, but I'm looking forward to that. So, if Cord, if you're listening, man, I'm looking forward to lunch with you sometime. Um, but anyway, the, the uh, Never Thirst opportunity came across came across my desk, and and to be completely 100 percent honest with you, I was so burned with this, thinking that well, maybe God just wants me to stay in business and maybe this is my ministry and I'm just not looking hard enough at where my ministry opportunities are with these business owners. Um, I just let it sit there for about a month. Uh, then my wife approached me and said, Matt, you know, I think, I think this has you written all over it. You know, I think you would be good at this. Um, you know, don't hold back, just, just apply and see if God's in it. And so I did on faith and, uh, the rest, I guess, as you say, it would be history. Here we are talking about it, and uh, I'm thrilled to be uh, the new executive director at Never Thirst. And, and we're thrilled to have you. Uh, okay, so awesome introduction. I want to just touch on a couple things that jumped out at me. Number one, your story is so similar to Olin's we had on two weeks ago. So he's the executive director for Campus Out- Outreach, which is a very similar organization to Navigators. He got impacted at Samford by a campus outreach guy who did life on life with him. He also got recruited and said, maybe I'll do this for a year. And he said, here I am 20 years later. Um, and, but just the way that that ministry, first of all, you were impacted as a student, and then you got to turn around and have that kind of impact on students. So I really, really love that. Again, very consistent with Olin. But then you felt that itch to go into the for-profit space in four years, doing well. Um, but you, even though that was fulfilling that entrepreneurial side of you, you were lack. You still felt like there was more, like there was a bigger purpose and role. And obviously, Julie felt that with wanting to go overseas and you know wanting maybe to be missionaries. And so, really, all of that came full circle for you guys with the Never Thirst opportunity. Um, and I also want to point out, like something you said that really struck me is at one point you had sixty direct reports. And well, that went, 60 people. Well, that, that you were overseeing. Yeah, they were. I was overseeing them, and the way that I had seven direct reports, those 60 were reporting up to seven, who those seven were reporting up to me. Yeah, yeah. that's how I should have said it differently. But yeah, so you're leading, either way, you're leading a big team. Yeah, yeah. And you went from that to a solopreneur. Yes. That's a tough transition, right? Very lonely. Like, 
you're used to casting vision and leading and encouraging and mentoring, and all of a sudden it's just you figuring it out, no one even to bounce ideas off of. Um, and so now you are not, and you and I talked a lot about this in the interview process. We want to make sure, hey, you know, you're coming into a pretty small team. And what I've seen you do is really say, well, actually, that's an opportunity because I can build it from the ground up and really establish what we have and grow on top of that. So I have a couple specific questions around uh, coming into an organization. You've been recruited. You'd never heard of it before the recruiting process. We have a 10-year track record. We have some, some really good things going on and obviously some ways we can improve. But how do you approach coming into a brand new business, a brand new ministry, and saying, all right, where am I going to take this thing? Just kind of give us a kind of short overview of how you've approached it and where we are now. Yeah. So as you know, as a board member, as a founder and board member, um, you know, what was really important to me when I was looking at this opportunity was I wanted to know how engaged and involved the board was. Um, And I think if the board had not been the type of, if the culture that you have set on the board had not been in place, I would have walked away from this opportunity in the New York Minute. Um, I think this is kind of the best of both worlds when it comes to board involvement and the fact that there it's a recognizable board um, in Birmingham and even outside regionally. Uh, it's an engaged board in the fact that um, I don't feel left to my own devices where there's no accountability. Um, but I also feel very empowered to do my job without any kind of meddling or micromanaging. Um, And I feel like everyone on the board has done an amazing job of following up with me, making sure that I've landed softly, um, wanting to know the vision and the direction, obviously, of where Neverthrust is going, but not telling me how to do my job. And so I think it takes a lot of security for everyone who sits on a board seat uh, to be able to come together and to do that and to know what the role of a board is. And so I think that the strength of that was, number one, really appealing to me. The second thing I looked at was when I met with the team in my interview process is what I'm looking for is people who are clearly able to do other things. You know, that, that this is not some sort of a fallback option. This is not something towards like, hey, you can't cut it uh, in business or in something else. Um, But this is truly a calling where these people have walked away from other opportunity, more money, um, you know, to do this, you know, to be a voice for the voiceless, to champion the cause of people um, who have no influence, no say, no voice, um, who who are virtually forgotten. And so I was so impressed. Uh, with the character, the quality, the integrity of the staff when I met them, uh, that that was also really, really appealing. Um, I think the brand strength was really strong, and I believed wholeheartedly uh, in the vision and the mission of Never Thirst and the actual ministry that was going on. So, I mean, it was hand in glove, and it was not even really a hard decision once I saw the way that it operated and once I saw the people involved. Okay, so let's stop there for a second, because I think I take it for granted that anyone listening to this show probably knows what Never Thirst is. Okay. But I'm always surprised by the people who reach out um, from other avenues. They're not Iron Tribe members. They're not from Birmingham. They may have no idea what Never Thirst is and what it does. So quickly, just tell us what this ministry does and why it is so impactful. 
Yeah, so Never Thirst is um, a, it's a clean water ministry at the end of the day. Um, and we're a ministry first. Make no, no mistake about it. We're not just a water organization. We are about advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ into the nations through the vehicle of clean water. So how we do that is we partner with local NGOs in uh, the developing world and the countries that we work in um, who help us uh, create clean water solutions uh, for people who have no access to that basic need. Um, our commitments are that we will only um, engage in clean water solutions, be it, be it wells or biosand filters, or in the past we've done rain tanks, uh, tap stands, and uh, engage in full WASH solutions, WASH being an acronym for water sanitation and hygiene. Uh, we won't engage in those types of solutions without, number one, partnering with a church planting organization uh, or local, local churches on the ground where we will arm a church planter with clean water to go into these unreached villages and places. And Forrest, you've been there, you've traveled. I mean, these are places that, you know, you turn off the paved road and travel hours um, down the dirt road, or which seems like one big pothole. And then you get out of the car and then you hike in uh, even further to these, the remotest places on the planet, you know, and there's this hundreds of thousands of people in these villages that live this way. And they have no access to the basic need of clean water and their kids are dying. They have waterborne illness. Um, you know, it, it, it's unthinkable that it's 2019 and people are living like this. Uh, but anyway, we are arming these church planters with the ability to bring clean water to these people in the villages. And that in turn gives them credibility to share the gospel with these people um, and see tremendous uh, spiritual fruit that flows from that for generations. And it's been incredible to be a part of and how we've been able to align Iron Tribe along with Never Thirst. I think the total is somewhere around four and a half million over the last 10 years through the Workout for Water. So any of you listeners who've been a part of the Workout for Water program just know that has been a huge part of what Never Thirst has done and what they're doing around the world. All right, well, I want to transition to business, I mean, to business, we've been on business, to transition to body. Um, you, you know the format of the show. I'm really interested to know, as a leader, as you're building um, Never Thirst, how is you staying in shape, weaponizing your body, how does it make you a better leader? How does it make you a better father? How does it make you a better spiritual leader in your house? It's a great question, and I think my younger self would have scoffed at that question because uh, I wasn't really into working out outside of sports, you know, and running was just a form of punishment, right? If you messed up, you had to run, and, you know, weightlifting was a necessary evil. Um, but I would say now I, I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine my life uh, without, without the daily workout. You know, it has been an absolute game changer, and so... Back in 2014, I was in a group, small group of guys, uh, business owners. I was the smallest business owner because I was a business of me. <laughs> uh, we met weekly, and they came to me with, uh, with the notion of Iron Tribe. They had run into a coach in Atlanta, and uh, he had pitched them on the idea, sold them uh, on a 101 class, and they invited me into it. Was that Ben Davis? It was Ben Davis. Okay. sold it, yeah. And so Ben's a great guy. Miss Ben. And... Um, 
anyway, I went to the 101, did my, you know, <laughs> and I've never been more ashamed of myself probably my entire life, you know, going through the 101 class and then starting Iron Tribe, um, you know, laying on the floor, panting, throwing up some days, um, but, you know, just building that steady discipline of getting up, getting to the gym, eating better has has changed my life because I have more energy, more lucidity of my thoughts, um, I'm more productive. I mean, it's it's changed the game. And so you are back now that you're in Birmingham. We plugged you in. You're at Iron Tribe. You competed this last weekend and battled the tribes. Um, so what does your routine look like? Are you a three-time-a-week guy? Are you a five-time-a-week guy? Are you, are you super disciplined on your diet? Like, What does your routine look like? Yeah, so back when I was really hot and heavy with Iron Tribe, 2014, 2015, uh, the first time around, uh, I was easily I was five times a week, um, eating clean the entire time, shed a ton of body fat, um, had great energy. Uh, we moved because of a school situation and ended up not living close to an Iron Tribe, and so I ended up getting back into some bad habits, putting the weight back on, not eating well. So since coming back and rejoining in April, um, I sign up for five classes a week. My goal is to hit four of those classes. Uh, Historically, I've been a morning guy. Love the mornings. What does morning mean for you? Morning is getting up at 5.30, beeline to the coffee pot, um, sitting in my office chair, spending time with the Lord for about 45 minutes. Breathing, doing some just deep breathing techniques to meditate on what I just read and really surrendering my day to the Lord and then hitting the 645 class. Okay, so you work out with Ricky? Yes, I work out with Ricky. Who's been on the show. Oh, well, hey, Ricky's a machine, and I hope that when I'm Ricky's age, I can keep up. You and me both. Hanging with him, man. Unbelievable. If it's a bodyweight workout, don't count him out. I don't care who's in the class. Well, today, Forrest, I didn't go to the 645s, first day of school, so I'm having to actually adjust my rhythm to to be a PM guy now because I feel like uh, that time with my family in the morning before school is going to be our time Mm. to... uh, to, to be together, all together in one place before everyone goes to their practices and extracurricular activities in the evening. Yep. We're, we don't want to be ships passing in the night. So if we're going to utilize that time in the morning, I'm shifting to PM now. Man, it's all about how are you going to place those priorities in your day, right? Absolutely. And it, it's probably a different rhythm over, over summer than it is over fall. Um, but I want to touch on one thing you said because sometimes I think, well, I mean, I'm in the fitness industry. It's all I've ever done. Maybe I'm different. But, man, I can't imagine attacking this life without my workout. Like, And you, you said it. I mean, that you, you basically articulated how I feel. Like the days I don't work out, unless it's a planned rest day and I miss it, like I'm just off. And I, I have to think, like, if you weren't working out at all, like, how could you really be at an optimal level? And the truth is you can't. You, you just can't. There's no way to have a, a truly successful life without being weaponized in your fitness. So you articulated that well. Okay, so we're going to transition into balance and talk about, you know, you've been married 17 years. You've got three kids. It's very clear you're a family man already evaluating how you're going to change your structure to make sure you're maximizing times with kids during school season. So talk to me about the importance of winning at home as you are doing all these big things in the rest of your life. Like I, I know you and I both believe like if we don't win at home, none of that matters. So talk to me about your balance domain. 
Oh man, sometimes force, if I'm honest, I feel like balance is the, the only time I hit balance is uh, when the pendulum is swinging from one extreme to the other, right? <laughs> it passes that middle place. Um, but this is something that honestly, I've probably had to be the most intentional in my entire life about. And, um, and the reason is, is because I made lots of bad choices. Um, as a younger man in ministry, I had something to prove. Um, and, you know, if you ask my wife, you know, she would probably tell you that I made her a ministry widow and made my kids ministry orphans, uh, because I just had something to prove. And, uh, the, the background, uh, just maybe more specific background is, uh, you know, in ministry as in business, you know, if the more successful you are, the more, you know, the more recognized you are, the more you get invited to do things um, and to spread influence uh, across greater geography. And so, you know, I was traveling quite a bit speaking and, um, you know, I felt like I was living out of conference centers and hotels uh, quite a bit. Uh, when I could have easily said no uh, to opportunities, and I just kept saying yes, yes, yes. And it came to a head. I was in Texas, I was speaking at a, at a conference in Texas, and I was simultaneously, during that season, it was winter, I was coaching my oldest son's basketball team. Um, and I was starting his practices, and then I was starting his games. Um, and I was gone on weekends, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I was standing in the hotel room, finished speaking that night, called my wife, check in how the day was. And she said, well, Matt, she was like, I had an interesting talk with Nathan today. I said, well, what was it? She said, well, I, I asked him how he would feel if dad didn't have to miss any more games. And he said, it would make me feel important. Hmm. And I mean, I just broke Forrest. I mean, I'm about to break now. Um, just recalling that story, but I, you know, I made decisions that made everyone else feel important, um, which in turn gave me some sort of sick feeling of importance. And uh, while I was killing my family, uh, you know, not there for them, there for everybody else, kind of thing. And and so something had to change at that moment, and I immediately suspended all speaking engagements uh, for the next year. Um, started getting really serious about spending time with my kids, uh, serving my wife, uh, listening to her. And, um, you know, I ended up, you know, getting really real with a group of, small group of guys um, and a coach and, you know, did a deep dive into what was going on in my heart, you know, that I felt the need to, to continue to just kind of put myself out there at the neglect of my family. And so, you know, the deep dive really is that I think I became addicted to my own press or influence that I could have. Um, I think I had something to prove and I had FOMO, right? And, uh, and I noticed the culture in Atlanta was the busier you are, like uh, somehow the, the badge of busyness is, is like the greatest honor or title that you could have. The busier you are, the more you have going on, the more people you have in your network, um, the more admired that is. And I just fell straight into that that trap. And, um, and it came to a point where I just had lots of opportunities to meet lots of influential people. And, and I think 
the human nature and the human heart feels like if you can be in the same room and in the same circle and the same sphere of influence with other people that people know have influence or power or money or whatever it is, then you get lumped into that and you can be kind of in the group. And so I was saying yes to every opportunity that put me there or allowed me in the club, so to speak, um, for fear that I wouldn't have that opportunity again. Um, and Julie just came to me flat out and confronted me and says like, every time you leave at night, every time you leave during the day, every time you say no to stuff with the kids, you're saying, this is a one-time opportunity. This is a, you know, the exception and not the rule. And she goes, your whole life seems like an exception. Hmm. Uh, and you're neglecting us. And, and when's it gonna stop? And when are you gonna choose us instead of choosing everybody else? And so, I mean, I just, you know, force as a married man, that cuts like a knife. And so I had to get really real with myself and say, how insecure do I have to be to feel like I need to be with these people instead of being with my family? And so, you know, that was a hard pill to swallow, looking in the mirror and admitting that I'm an insecure man that was looking for approval and acceptance with these people while I was losing my own influence in my family. And so, yeah, the major shift was I just stopped traveling altogether, uh, began to schedule time with my kids, began to schedule time with my wife. Um, and so I think I'm very confident that if you were to sit down with Julie uh, today and ask her if it's been different, she would say unequivocally, yes, it's totally different. Uh, the man that I was married to back then is different than the man I'm married to today. And I think that's like really the deep surgery that God had to do in my own heart to help me be secure in him uh, instead of looking for that affirmation or approval or for other, from other people. Well, I know you know this, but I want you to hear it from me on the show is you are not alone. Like, <laughs> And that's probably what you found when you got real with a group of guys is we're all battling that demon of identity, of success, of marginalizing what's truly important to chase what seems important, what the entire world is telling us what's important. Um, you're not alone. Like that's something we all wrestle with. And so uh, I'm excited to hear about the changes that you've made. I've, I've went through a very similar process and very similar conversations uh, to get to this point. Um, but I do want to dive in because it's something that, you know, I see these patterns come up through the show. And a lot of truth is truth, right? And one of the things I talk about, even the tagline of the, of the show is, I want to help you find your tribe. And part of that is accountability. And so your process was getting real with a group of guys. And that's, to me, where it starts is if you're not willing to be real and say, hey, guys, here's where I'm struggling, like, you never get to the heart issue, right? So just talk briefly about um, how having an accountability group help, helped you make that transition. Yeah, so um, I went to college with a guy uh, named Ben Washer, uh, who is a business owner in Atlanta. And we weren't super close in college, but we were friends. And he lived in Atlanta, uh, recruited me to live in his neighborhood when I when I told him I was moving to Atlanta, he was friends with a guy named Jim Dudley, who I believe that you know, who's also a business owner. And then um, 
you know, as in God's sovereignty, uh, he, he brought uh, another guy named Hessel Baker, who is a business owner, uh, into into our circle. And so the, f- you know, the four of us ended up meeting weekly for over six years. Mm. And um, I would say it started with Bible study and, um, you know, share the knowledge and share, you know, that kind of stuff with each other. And then it just transitioned into, man, these are the, let's be honest about the struggles that we're having uh, in business and in family and just internally, uh, the thing, the weights that we're carrying, you know, and silently suffering. Let's not like silently suffer, you know, even in a together. Cause I think that's possible is like a group of guys can sit totally for possible. years and suffer in silence and never really be real. And what happened is Ben had been, uh, Ben's business is uh, fairly well known in a lot of different circles and he has opportunity to meet lots of neat people. And one of the people that he met was a guy named Chip Dodd, who's could potentially be controversial in different circles, but he runs a, uh, a counseling center in Nashville called Center for Professional Excellence. And so Ben and his conversations with Chip um, came out that Chip said, you know, a lot of high-flying, high-achieving guys um, can pretty much go at a, a recklessly fast pace for about 20 to 25 years before they hit a wall of burnout where they act out in a particularly harmful way. Uh, it could just be burnout where they just shut down and never get back the energy and vigor that they once had. It could be, uh, you know, affairs. Uh, it could be, you know, fiduciary indiscretion. Uh, it could be uh, all, all manner, a host of different things that it can manifest as. Uh, but your runaway as a high flyer is about 20 to 25 years without really showing major symptoms of a greater disease. So Ben, in his uh, visionary way, um, rented out a room at a country club, invited like 50 business owners to have kind of a preventative talk with this guy, Chip. And Chip said, um, I think it's like $84,000. You have to quit your life for like eight or nine weeks, move to Nashville and you know, it's like intensive therapy kind of thing are the types of business owners that he sees. And he said, the preventative thing, this is what we do uh, in therapy. <laughs> and and we're all sitting around waiting for like some nugget of gold. And what he did is he just took the table out of the middle of the room, sat eight guys, eight volunteers in a circle, knee to knee with no physical barrier between them, wrote eight words on a piece of cardboard, put them in the middle of the circle. And he said, all emotions are flow off of these eight words. And I believe it was anger, fear, um, loneliness, sadness, uh, guilt, shame, and uh, hurt, and one other one. I can't remember what it was. But he said, they're all off of these eight emotions. And if you're unaware of what you're, if you're so self unaware of what you're feeling and you can't name it, he goes, then you're headed down that path Mm. to, to major, major burnout somewhere down the road. And so these eight guys modeled it. We kind of took that model into our group and and it was kind of like for the first month or two, there wasn't a dry eye, you know, it's just kind of 
man, we're, we're actually confessing to each other, like how we're feeling, why we're feeling afraid, why we're angry, why we're lonely or hurt, you know, from things in the past and stuff. And just, and it became a really safe place to do that. And I would say the danger in that is that that could become the ultimate thing and it just needs to be a supplement, right? It, you always have to go back to the Word of God and let that define your identity and everyone who God says that you are. But man, just that one tool of sitting with guys and saying like, I'm an angry man. Or guys, if I'm really honest, I'm pretty afraid. <laughs> and this is why. Uh, or you know what, even though I'm sitting with you guys, I feel pretty isolated and lonely uh, and that no one really understands. And, you know, it sounds crazy even saying that on a podcast, but it's true. I mean, that was really, really helpful for our group to be able to go there. And then the fruit of conversation and the depth that you can get into in each other's lives, the trust that is built, the safety that is in that was just absolutely life-giving, life-changing, and um, very timely for me. And I've talked multiple times about the power of being real with an accountability group, and you you said it so well. Um, In fact, I took my podcast equipment to one of my groups, and we just sat around and talked about what we get. And I think one of the biggest things, I said it just a second ago, is you're not alone. And when you open up, it gives another person the safe space to say, man, me too. Like, here's what I'm struggling with. And that authenticity, I think, can really safeguard you from a lot of downfalls, as as you were talking about. All right, so let's wrap up. And the cool thing about this, similar to Olin's and David's podcast, is being has been from the word go, right? But I guess what I'm most interested in is with the busyness of being in a professional ministry setting where you're, quote unquote, always doing God's work, right? Um, How do you safeguard your personal relationship with Christ? And how does that undergird, how is that the foundation for all domains of your life, including being successful in business? Yeah, so great question. Um, I would agree with Olin and David in the fact that it's the canopy over everything, right? Or undergirds everything, however you want to say that. Uh, I think when you are in vocational ministry, the danger is that the time that you spend in the Word of God is time that you're thinking of others, right? It's time it's spent in the Word for thinking, how am I going to say this to this audience? Um, and so it's easy to neglect your own soul. And so my, uh, my rhythms are that, um, I think I said earlier, you know, I'm up in the morning, and the first thing I do is I just open the Word of God. And so I like to read uh, through the Scriptures chronologically. That really, really helps me. If you go to, like, blueletterbible.com, you can download the chronological Bible. Um, but you really get the narrative, right, of the redemptive story of Christ through the entire Scriptures uh, reading chronologically. And so it really helps me. I'm like, okay, where are we at in the story of redemption today? Um and then, like I said, I'll, I'll breathe. I think one technique that I've picked up is just kind of deep breathing, you know, and settling my soul, uh, confessing whatever anxieties that I have for that day to the Lord um, and thinking about what I just read so it's not like in and out. Uh, and then I'm off to my day. And then uh, another rhythm that I've built in is like once a month for a half day, um, I just spend a a half day time alone with God 
Uh, I'm not a great journaler. I uh, never have been. I generally journal when I'm in pain. <laughs> um, and that's when it all really comes out. But, um, but I'll take a, my Bible, my journal, and maybe a book that I'm working through. And then the main thing, the, probably the, the most important rhythm that I have or discipline that I have to practice is, is being unplugged. Uh, because I think, you know, with, with the phone, man, every time that thing dings and buzzes and stuff like that, it's just, just put it away, you know, because I'm so easily distracted uh, to either turn it off and communicate to my wife it's off or know that if something particular is important happening and I need to be available for her, I only answer it if it's her and her ring, you know, and uh, I don't look at it that whole time. So once a month that way, uh, and then what, when it really starts getting leaky, it's a goal and it's, uh, one day a quarter. So that one month, half day a month, uh, on the quarter, try to extend that to a full day. Um, but that's, that becomes harder and harder to do. So I'd be lying to you if I said that I'm good at keeping that, uh, that's sacred, but yeah, mornings with the Lord, uh, every morning. And then a half day a month, just time alone with God, where there's no distractions. And I can really pray, and I can really read, and I can really do some self-evaluation and uh, reflection on my decisions that I've made, the ones that have impacted everybody else, not just myself, um, and where, where God wants me to go in the future. Awesome. Um, as we wrap up, talk to our listeners about Never Thirst and how they could get involved if they're not already involved. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's a lot of things that are exciting that's happening at Everthirst right now. Uh, Ways that you can get involved is we have several professional uh, positions open right now. So if you're particularly uh, gifted and bent towards digital marketing and communications, we're searching for a full-time employee in that arena. Um, We are also... uh, beginning to, if, if you have high schoolers, uh, or if you are a high schooler listening to this, uh, we're forming a junior board. Uh, we have a donor who is, has a daughter who's a senior at Mount Brook High School, and she has taken it upon herself to rally her friends in her sphere of influence around different high schools uh, in Birmingham to basically form a junior board for Never Thirst and create um, clubs in the high schools that are uh, raising awareness and money uh, for projects that we have uh, around the world in these water-scarce countries. Um, I would also say that um, you know we have the volunteer button on our website, and we get that thing hit on a pretty regular basis from people all around the country, and we are looking for brand ambassadors uh, all around the country, and if you want to become a brand ambassador for Never Thirst and learn what that would look like and what you could do, and how to get free swag uh, to wear, uh, then by all means, go and click that, fill out, and make sure that you um, fill in the comments in terms of how you would like to volunteer, how you would, what information you would like to be a brand ambassador uh, for the organization, and we would love to engage with you that way. Um, and I'll just say this in closing, Forrest, is, you know, the the if we could go back in time just a few minutes to never thirst and why never thirst is water is like ground zero 
for so many ills in the world, right? If you're a woman or a young girl in a developing country that's water scarce, it's going to be your job and your destiny to walk an unthinkable amount of hours of your life to a dirty water source for your family just to survive. And what ends up happening is that young girl is now cheated out of an opportunity to get an education because her lot in life is to go find water. Uh, while she's walking for hours one way just to find water, her chances of getting trafficked by uh, nefarious men is exponentially higher than if she was in the safety of her own village in her own school. Um, the water that she's bringing back is riddled with waterborne illness, uh, which most likely will end up taking the life of someone in her family. Um, and if it's a parent, then you have orphans to care for. And so water just has, it holds women down. Lack of clean water holds women down across the world from getting ahead in anything. Lack of education, the higher uh, risk of being trafficked, uh, and just repeating the cycle of hopelessness, disease, and lack of education, and, and lack of uh, empowerment in any way. And so if, if you care about any of those things, <laughs> you know, please join us. Uh, join us in the fight to, uh, to end this, this epidemic around the world, and we'd be honored to work with you. Well, I'm excited about the work uh, we have done. I'm really excited about the future of Never Thirst with you at the helm. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us so many topics that are near and dear to this show and my heart of what it takes to lead at a high level and not leave your body and your family and your faith behind because it is a slippery slope. Um, you've been an encouragement. I know you will be to our listeners and really appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Forrest. We will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Give us a review or a comment, a like, a share. Uh, we'd love to reach more people with the show. So thanks for listening.